Welcome to the Lagan Valley Vineyard Podcast. We are a community passionate about seeing Lagan Valley filled with the presence and the teachings of Jesus. If you would like to connect with us or if we can help you in any way, please visit our website, laganvalleyvineyard.com. If we haven't met yet, my name's Andy, I'm the senior pastor here. If you're a guest or a visitor, I see some guests in the room, you're so welcome. We are thrilled that you're here. We hope you feel at home and very much a part of our family today. Uh, welcome to a community that's marked by the dreams and the vision of God. And in, in Northern Ireland, that can be slightly tricky ground to stand on because, you know, we, we don't like to be people that think beyond ourselves or um, commit the cardinal sin of being too big for our boots. And yet, it is impossible not to be infected by possibility when you connect to Jesus. And in this community, we have a dream, like Stu shared, that the entire Lagan Valley would be full of the life of Jesus and a vision that this expression of His church here would be on fire with the power of the Holy Spirit. This week has been pretty normal for us. We've been in homes and gardens, lives, individuals and families across this community seeking to tangibly demonstrate the love and compassion of God. I heard a great story a few weeks ago. Davy Morrow and I were prayer walking through Hill Hall Estate, and uh, we bumped into uh, a dear lady who's part of this community who was out sweeping up the footpath, and we got chatting, and she shared that she had an appointment the next day with her doctor because she had to go and get fluid removed from her knee, and Davy and I said, look, can we just pray for you before you go? And uh, she said, yeah, I would love that, and she sent me a little video uh, this week on WhatsApp just to let me know that when she showed up at the doctor the next day, he said, Maureen, you've got no fluid on your knee. <laughs> it's gone. Um, we love that. Just God breaking in in ordinary ways in the middle of our ordinary lives. We also uh, know that this week for many of you has been full of challenges, uh, full of loss or grief, and uh, full of just normal life. And that's really what we're trying to figure out together. How do we follow Jesus together in the midst of all of the challenges of ordinary life? We are starting a new series this week that's going to take us through the summer called Walk This Way. Some of you are thinking, cue music. Aerosmith, Run DMC. Actually, this is a really interesting moment to figure out the demographics in the room because some of you are thinking, Aerosmith, is that some new kind of chocolate bar? Um, who or what is Aerosmith and Run DMC? You will perhaps be disappointed to find out that a 1986, yes, 1986 collaboration between a rock band and a hip-hop group has absolutely nothing to do with what we are going to talk about for the rest of the summer. Some of you will find that as good news, some of you perhaps bad news. But we've been chatting since the new year. We, we unpacked the, the book of Joshua, sensing that God was leading us into new ground and out of that, after Easter, we've been in a series called Walking with Jesus, um, Walking with God, figuring out what does it actually look like for us to walk with God in our ordinary lives. And through the summer, we want to take that a little step further and ask, what does it actually look like for us to be formed in the way of Jesus? Not just in our thoughts, not just in a couple of minutes in the morning before we go out to work, but 
What does it look like for us as a people to actually walk in the way of Jesus? And today we're going to be in two passages. We're not going to kind of work through them verse by verse, but um, we are going to be inspired by two passages, one in Matthew chapter 5 and one in chapter 22. If you have a Bible close by, why don't you turn to Matthew 5, stick a finger in there, and then over to Matthew 22, and we're going to start today, Matthew 22, verse 34, and then we'll jump back to Matthew chapter 5. I can still hear pages turning. I'll give you a minute. Matthew 22, verse 34. Come, Holy Spirit. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all of your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and prophets hang on these two commandments. And then jump back over to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to read verse 13 through to 16. It says, You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built in hell cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Amen. Amen. One of the things that I notice constantly about the things that Jesus says is that they usually have two things in common. One, they're usually really simple or really clear. And two, they're really quite difficult to figure out what they actually look like in our lives. When Jesus speaks, it's, it's usually pretty clear exactly what he's saying. And because it's so clear, we can often miss the fact that actually figuring out how we inhabit that in the choices that we make and the way that we live our lives, it can actually be, be really, really difficult. The first passage we read, the context is a bunch of legal experts trying to catch Jesus out. If any of you have studied ethics before, you will be familiar with what's known as the train dilemma. You're standing beside a railway track, there's a runaway train coming, and it's heading towards five people working on the track who don't know that it's coming. But there's a junction and a lever, and you could pull the lever and divert the train, but down that track is one person who doesn't see the train coming. What do you do? Do you let the train career on and kill the five people that don't see it's coming, or do you intervene and pull the lever, but that results in the death of one person? We're not going to discuss or debate that much further. I'll leave that for lunch. But this moment in Matthew chapter 22 
these Pharisees are trying to do something similar. They're trying to figure out how do we ask Jesus a question that's going to actually be impossible for him to get it right. They've devoted their lives to studying what was known as the Levitical law. The law of Moses, that is, chapters, thousands of pages, thousands of verses deep. All of equal priority for them to apply to their lives. And so they're trying to catch Jesus out by going, Jesus, what's the most important? Because if he says this is the most important, they can go, aha, all about that. But if he says, well, actually, they're all the same, they can go, aha, you didn't get that right. This is what they're trying to do. They're trying to catch him. They're trying to catch him out. They've concocted what they think is an unanswerable question. How could anyone sum the whole law up into one commandment? That's why there's a whole law, not just one commandment. But Jesus does it. He says, love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as you love yourself. That's really simple, right? Love God with everything that you have. And love other people the same way. Really simple. But what does it actually look like in your life And how are you doing at that? What does it look like for you to love God, for your life to be ordered around loving God, and not just with some kind of physical, moral, good living effort, but heart, soul, mind, and strength. With everything that you have, Jesus says, Our lives are supposed to be ordered around the love of God, that every single decision we make should be influenced or dictated to by loving God and loving other people. I hope we know that this means more than listening to worship music in the car or attending church on a Sunday. Jesus' vision for life in his kingdom touches every single part of our lives. How we relate to our neighbors, our approach and our mindset when it comes to our work, the way we structure our family, our relationships, our finance, every single part of our lives. And once we start to understand that, we realize it's really, really clear, but it's actually quite complicated. And it requires us to think things through, to reflect deeply on the way our lives are ordered and structured, the priorities, the rhythms, the habits of our lives. How are we doing? I wonder how are you doing when it comes to ordering your life around the love of God and other people? And I have to be careful because in Northern Ireland, the most dangerous place we can ever be is a place where we think we're winning. Like anytime I ask people this question, how are you doing? It's kind of part of my job. People come meet me and I'm like, well, what, how are you doing with Jesus? The answer is always the same. Andy, to be honest, I could be doing so much better. I really could be doing so much better. Like we walk around with this sense of guilt all the time that we should be doing more. We should be doing better. We should read our Bible more. We should pray more. We should reach out more. Um. I have a um, family friend. He's known as Uncle Wallace. And he's truly a unique man. But one of the things that make him so different than almost everyone else I meet, he's properly from Northern Ireland, right? But whenever you meet Uncle Wallace and you say, how are you doing? 
He always says something that is really unusual in this place. He always answers or almost always says, great. Just try doing that this week. Every time someone asks you how you're doing, put a smile on your face and say, great. And watch the kind of suspicion and shock that you're met with. Because we're the not too bad people, right? Or the can't complain people. How's it going? I can't complain. (laughs) Or, yeah, not too bad. When I ask how we're doing, we instantly go to, you got me. I know I need to do better. And that's a really unhelpful starting point for this conversation. Because if we go into this conversation this summer where my hope and prayer, as lots of my friends come up and open the scriptures for us, is that you will feel so deeply challenged and inspired to join in with the Holy Spirit in ordering your life around the love of God and the love of other people. But my fear is that you'll do that with a big baggage load of guilt that, yeah, I'm a terrible Jesus follower and I just need to do better. This is not that. I want us to begin from a posture of knowing, believing, That there is nothing in all of creation that can separate us from the love of God revealed to us in Christ Jesus. Like that that is where we start. God is for you. He loves you. He is with you. This conversation doesn't begin with an invitation to the headmaster or mistress's office because you're doing it wrong. The reality is there's probably all kinds of parts of our lives that we are doing it wrong. And we do need to be challenged and we do need to change, but it comes out of the context of the revelation and experience of the love and grace of God in Jesus. It's the only thing that will actually sustain us. It's the only thing that stops this being like a January 1st sort of, I'm going to do this and I'm going to try really hard and three weeks later I'm going to give up. That's really, really important. God loves us, but he invites us deeper, and we want to take him seriously. He commands us here in Matthew 22 to love him with everything, but in order to do that, we need a plan. It's not good enough for us to just think, yeah, do more, work harder, more Bible, more prayer. What's love, like and value doing? Sign up to every single one. That's how this will work. It's not how it works. He commands us to love him with everything, but we need a plan. Ordering, around, ordering our life around loving God and loving others, it doesn't just happen. It can't just happen. Because the direction of the culture that we live in, the water that we swim in, is not towards God or the things of his kingdom. I'm not like anti-world in this moment. It's just a reality. The prevailing winds of the culture that we live in will not take us towards what we are talking about. And if you need any example of that, just think for a moment about what's happened or been happening in Westminster over the last 12 months or so. I'm not so naive as to think that 30 years ago, our political leaders were all angelic truth-tellers. But there did used to be an unwritten rule in political life, often referred to as rule number one, which says, 
whatever you do, don't get caught. Because when you get caught, you have to resign. That's how it worked. 30 years ago, if you got caught in some kind of scandal, there wasn't really a debate about whether you could tough it out. It was, oh dear, <laughs> you got caught. The consequences are you need to resign. We don't live in that world anymore. The truth is that the highest offices of our land are governed by poles, not principles. And I don't mean people from Poland. The highest offices of our land are, are governed by what does the mob think, not what's good and right and true. And as people trying to follow Jesus, we must understand that the water we swim in is not morally neutral or agenda-free. One commentator I read this week said, we live in an age of chronic doubt, insecurity, individualism, consumption, and exhaustion. Chronic doubt, insecurity, individualism, consumption, and exhaustion. Any of those sound familiar to you? And this is the church. <laughs> we should expect to find these things in the world. But what about here? Something in our approach to life with God has broken down. Where we sometimes think worship music plus church attendance plus a few Christian friends, that'll be enough. That's not enough. There's no amount of worship music or sermons that will be enough. Having a plan, having a structure, a form of rhythms and habits and priorities that you actually order your life around it's the only thing that will sustain us. If you ever listen to firemen or people in the rescue services who are being interviewed after some incredibly heroic act, like they've been called into some carnage, and while everyone else is running away or trying to stay a safe distance, they wade right in. And oftentimes, when a journalist shoves a microphone in their face and says, how on earth did you do that? They say a version of, well, when we arrived, our training kicked in and we did our job. That we practice over and over and over and over again so that whenever we're presented with the kind of thing that the rest of the world runs away from, gets intimidated by, and has absolutely no clue what to do in, our training kicks in and we do our job. We don't even think about it. It's the same, or supposed to be the same for us as Christ followers, that whenever the world is falling apart, when that person in your work or on your street or in your family does that thing that pushes all of your buttons, your training kicks in and forgiveness flows out. That does not happen on its own. It is a result of formation that requires us to actually make some decisions and prioritize some things. 
How many of us are more formed by TV, news, and social media because five minutes in the Bible in the morning is no competitor for five hours on TikTok every day? We are all being discipled all of the time. The real question is towards what or whom? We are all being discipled all of the time. The question that we have to wrestle with is towards what or whom. Ordering our lives around the love of God and the love of of others results in something. It makes us distinct in the world where we're able to actually be the church. The second passage we read this morning, Jesus looks at his followers and says, you're the salt of the earth and you're the light of the world. I hate that verse. Like it is so much more comforting to say, Jesus, you are the salt of the earth and Jesus, you are the light of the world. But when Jesus looks at us and says, you're the salt of the earth and you're the light of the world, I go, oh no, we're doomed. Because I know me. How about you? What does it look like for us to become salt and light? It doesn't happen on its own. It requires a plan. The part of those verses that scares me the most, though, is when Jesus says, if the salt loses its saltiness, it's good for nothing. All we can do is throw it out. That scares me when I think about the church. And I'm not just talking about this one. How salty are we? How bright does our light actually shine? Once again, the words of Jesus are really clear, but they beg the question, what does that look like in my life? How does salt behave? What does light look like? In Northern Ireland, in July, in the year 2022, how does salt behave And what does light look like? In your family, in the street that you live in, in the place that you go to every single day to work, what does light look like? How does salt behave? You see, the antidote to doubt is faith. The antidote to insecurity is love. To individualism is community. To consumption is contribution. And to exhaustion is rest. But how, for those of us who are crippled with chronic doubt, how do we actually get from here to a life rooted in real faith? For those of us crippled with insecurity, what does it look like for our lives to be saturated in the love and the experience of the love of God? How do we detangle or detach ourselves from a world that says individualism is the pinnacle of human existence. That you being able to do whatever you want is the gospel. And it's utterly hopeless. How do we move from a life formed like zombies where we're dead, but we have to consume all the time to mask the experience of death and numbness that we are living through. And perhaps 
the most profound for us all in this cultural moment is what does it actually look like to be a people of rest? A people who are not exhausted. I have a friend who reminds me often that on the seventh day of creation, God didn't rest because he was tired. We have a very unhealthy relationship to work in this little part of the world where we are allowed to rest when we feel like we deserve it. I am the most guilty probably here of anyone. I actually had a fairly intense chat with Dana on Friday because I had some trees to plant and at four o'clock I had none of them in the ground. And I said, Dana, if I don't do what I set out to do today, I am not going to be happy come eight o'clock later. We are addicted to achievement. And we feel like we can only unplug or lean back when we've done something to deserve it. What does it look like for us to become a people of rest? The question remains how? I am not so foolish as to think in the next five minutes I can answer that for you. That's the journey that we're going to go on this summer. As we look at these areas and issues and think, how do those things come alive in our lives? And they only work if you actually begin to say, I'm going to make a decision to prioritize that. I am going to start a new habit in my life to be formed in that. The big family Bible read is the, just the beginning of this. And if you have not signed up yet, just do it. Just do it. Sign up, get your little bookmark, get an actual paper Bible, not a distraction device, and sit down in the morning and start there. Start there. Will it be everything? Absolutely not. Is it something? 100%. We used to say this in the early days of this church all the time when we told the story of the little boy who brought his lunchbox to feed thousands. The question isn't how much you have, it's who you're giving it to. And when we commit, when we commit to begin to order our lives around the things of God, guess what happens? The Holy Spirit shows up and he multiplies our small efforts into big outcomes. I want to land this this morning with a story. Jamie, why don't you and the guys come back up? Um, Germany in the early 1930s, the threat of Nazi power was growing, and many were really, really concerned about the compromise within the church. You see, the church was increasingly capitulating to and cooperating with the Nazi government. The loyalty in the hearts of church leaders that should have been reserved only for Jesus was being handed over to the Fuhrer and his government. One commentator of the time wrote, Hitler did not merely want to rule Germany politically. He wanted to control the hearts and souls of its citizens. And the church was falling in line with that vision as it sought to preserve itself. 
when a Nazi-supported group gained control of the German evangelical church, they proposed the removal of all non-Aryan clergy. They sought to rewrite ancient church liturgies, making it more German. They even tried to remove the Old Testament from the Bible. This is what was going on, and the conversations that were happening with church leaders, those responsible for leading people towards Christ and His kingdom. Recognizing all of this, a group of pastors sought for ways to stay faithful to the worship of Jesus above all else in the world and universe and to not allow the church of Christ to be an organ of the state. It was in this context that Dietrich Bonhoeffer was invited to establish an underground Bible college to train church leaders in how to not just believe the right things but figure out how salt behaved and what light looked like in that context. They began to realize that what they'd been doing up until that point in time, it was not enough. It could not stand against the pressures of the culture around them. And what was increasingly becoming really complex and really dangerous, how did salt behave? What did light look like? Those were the questions that Dietrich Bonhoeffer and his friends were bringing to the scriptures and to each other in the context of 1930s Germany. And around 1935, a manor house in a rural town called Finkenwald became available. And the owners donated it to Dietrich Bonhoeffer and it became the home for this underground Bible college. It was on the banks of a river near a Nazi airfield that was used to train pilots for the Luftwaffe. And one um, scholar heard about Bonhoeffer's Bible college. I think he was actually a journalist from Berlin. And he was really concerned about how radical their commitment to Jesus was. And so he came to do a story on this supposed underground Bible study. Bonhoeffer walked him up to the top of a small hill and in one direction they could see the Nazi airfield, they could see planes landing and taking off, they could see soldiers out drilling and on the other side of the hill they could see this crumbly old manor house with a few grey-haired pastors and Bible college students kicking around in the garden. The record from that journalist said this, Bonhoeffer led myself and Niesel, must have been a friend, up a small hill to a clearing from which they could see in the distance the vast field, the runways of the nearby squadron. German fighter planes were taking off and landing. Soldiers moved hurriedly in purposeful patterns. Bonhoeffer spoke of a new generation of Germans in training whose disciples, whose disciples were formed by a kingdom a new generation in training whose disciples were formed in a kingdom of hardiness and cruelty. It would be necessary, he explained, to propose a superior discipline if the Nazis were to be defeated. Bonhoeffer knew that what he was doing in his Bible college had to be stronger than what Hitler was doing in his army. He knew discipleship must be stronger than cultural formation. Loyalty must be stronger than compromise. And then pointing at the old crumbly manor house and looking at the airfield, he said, this must be stronger than that. This 
must be stronger than that. The ridiculousness of that claim. A feeble pastor thinking that a crumbly old house with a few theologians and Bible college students could stand up to the might of the Third Reich and what was increasingly becoming the Nazi empire. Finkenwald was shut down by the Gestapo in 1937. And on the 9th of April, 1945, Bonhoeffer was executed in Flossenburg concentration camp. He was 39 years old. But three weeks later, the camp was liberated. What amazes me about his life and his vision for this little Bible college was at the time it was seen as a feeble attempt to resist what was inevitable. And yet, the smallest of seeds has grown into a tree that has inspired literally millions and shaped the vision for Christian discipleship ever since. For Bonhoeffer, in the end, this was stronger than that. But it cost him absolutely everything. Bonhoeffer figured out exactly what ordering his life around the love of God and the love of others required of him. He figured out how salt behaved. He had a vision for what light actually looked like. And in the way that only God can do, in his death, his light still shines. What about us? What about you? Northern Ireland, July 2022, in whatever occupies you in most of your life, how would salt behave? What does light look like? And before you kind of run out the doors to, I just need to go do a load of stuff, has that been formed in you? In such a way that when the building is on fire, your training will kick in and you will just do your job. What this must be stronger than that? What way exactly should we be walking? In the context of all that rages or doesn't in our current political system, in everything that's about to happen in streets and communities over the next two weeks. What does it actually look like for us to be salt and to be light? It is so easy to just stand on the sidelines and point. How do we behave like salt? How do we look like light? Well, the first thing we do is in all humility cast ourselves in a posture of repentance upon the grace and love of Almighty God. We surrender again. We say, Jesus, we can't do this without you. We get it wrong all the time. So if you're able, we stand. We are going to get into the detail of this over the coming weeks. But I want us to um, I want us to do something that we haven't done for a while here on a Sunday. And 
you're going to need to get a little bit of space. And so you might want to shuffle sideways. Uh, we're not going to do prayer ministry like we normally do. We come to the front and people pray for you. Uh, but what I feel like as we begin this journey is we need to find ourselves in what is, or I think at least should be, the most common posture that followers of Jesus find themselves in, on our knees, in an attitude of repentance. Before we could ever presume to bring any kind of hope or solution to the world, we must come through a posture of humility and repentance. Otherwise, we're just arrogant telling people what they should do. And so what I'd love us to do, just as we close, the band are going to lead us in a really old, very familiar song. We're coming back to the heart of worship where it's all about Jesus. And I'd love us just to find some space around the room. You can just push your chairs forward if you need to and just kneel. If you're physically able, just kneel. And begin as we worship to repent. There's stuff in your lives you need to repent of. That is good news. This is not the headmaster scolding you. This is you throwing yourself on the love and grace of God who's with you, who's for you, who longs to restore you and help you as we reorder our lives around what he has. So as the band lead us, just begin to get some space and just kneel. Repent. Ask Jesus to forgive you. Ask him to fill you again. Do your work with Jesus. Come Holy Spirit. We welcome you in this moment. Father, thank you that you're a restoring God. Thank you that you pour your grace out upon us. We need your love, Jesus. We need your love, Jesus. Come and meet us as we worship.